Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Alamo Drafthouse Richardson and season nine of Airtime. Welcome back from our holiday break. Uh, I'd please li like to introduce Miss Pat Fox from the Arts Incubator of Richardson. Welcome. I'm so glad to see all of you here tonight to enjoy our wonderful presentation. I would just like to thank our sponsors. We are uh, funded tonight by the City of Richardson through the Cultural Arts Commission, by the Anne and Charles Eisman Arts Innovation Initiative, and by the Texas Commission on the Arts. We're also underwritten, Airtime's also underwritten by Deanna and Eric Weiss of Wealthstar Advisory. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Pat, and thank you to all of our sponsors. Welcome to season nine of Airtime, presented by AIR, the Arts Incubator of Richardson, in partnership with the Alamo Draft House Cinema in Richardson. Airtime is an interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in Richardson and the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Please help me in welcoming our guest for tonight. It's February 12th, 2019, and our guest for tonight is oral historian, writer, storyteller, educator, multicultural program provider, consultant, keynote speaker, and griot, Mr. D.C. Cornish. Well, thank you. How y'all doing? You guys hear me okay? Okay, all right. Hmm? Oh, okay. Pick the mic up. Uh, D.C. has been telling in Texas, parts of Kansas, Louisiana, and the Midwest for over 18 years. So uh, to start, you call yourself an urban griot. So, so let's dissect that first. Tell us what a griot is, for those of us who may not know, and then tell us what about you is particularly urban in your griotness. Okay. <laughs> okay. <coughs> the term griot was actually coined by the French. When they went to Africa during the period of the African dysphoria, they would take, they would raid a village, and one of the people in the village was the griot, the storyteller. And they kept history verbally. They would be passed from generation to generation. This person, the French gave him the name griot, and it's spelled G-R-I-O-T, but you don't pronounce the T like you don't pronounce it for Bridget Bardot. Y'all remember Bridget Bardot? Okay. And, uh, but the African word is actually jali, jali. But the most common term is griot. And you find that in Europeans, as they began to document our stories, they would use that term. But the African term is really, the African term, oh, there we go. <laughs> the African term is really jali. And one of the things that happened is during the dysphoria, a lot of times they wanted the enslaved people to arrive without a history or a culture. And with the griot being the one that kept that, it was important for them to make sure that they were not brought over. Oftentimes they were dealt with harshly. And, um, they wanted the enslaved people to arrive in the new world, basically with no history, no culture. But nature will find a way. Nature will find a way. And the stories, you could, 
You couldn't take that away from the people. The story stayed in them. And I decided that I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to tell stories. I actually tried to be a poet first. I wrote poetry. Y'all want to hear a piece of poetry real quick? I did that angry black guy poetry. <laughs> like this one. While sitting in classes and making passes, Uncle Sam interrupted my day. He said, come with me, brother, and I'll teach you another game that you can play. This is your weapon. This is your gun. One is for killing, the other for fun. I learned a new kind of love, especially for my brother, because when push came to shove, we only had each other. Conflict. I fought for life, liberty, and mom's apple pie. Now they fight for clothes, cars, and a way to get high. What happened to change me and you? Was the change in us, or was the change in the red, the white, and the blue? Conflict. Thank you. And so, but, I, but all the other people, could, they could write better poetry than me, because I, I would write that kind of angry stuff, you know. But I also was a great student of my history and my culture. And at the time, it was not being presented widely. And I decided that that was what I was going to try and do. And I started doing it part time. And one thing led to another. And before you know it, I was actually being asked to write and study. And that was how I got to become an oral historian. My oral histories actually go all the way back to, I would say, 1991, 92 with a slave ship called the Henrietta Marie. The Henrietta Marie, back in the olden days, the Henrietta Marie sank off of Key West in Florida. A group of treasure hunters was looking for treasure, and they had dropped that machine down to check for ferrous metal, and they found it. Oh, they thought they found something. We finna get rich. We done found all this gold. We finna go down there and get all this money. We gonna be living large. But when they dived down there, they found out what they, when they kicked the machine off, it wasn't gold. It was actually shackles. So they came up, and one of the guys that was with their team knew of a group of black scuba divers out of Miami. They went and told them about where this was. They dived down there. They started bringing it back up. They got money from the government to put it together. When they got the thing together, they brought it up from the bottom of the ocean best they could. And it ended up at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. And they was reclaiming what was left of that ship. One of the members at the museum had heard me tell stories and asked me, if I would come and develop some stories to go with the slave ship to Henrietta Marie. And that was the beginning of my work as an oral historian. And from the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History, I did the South Dallas Cultural Center and uh, Stephen F. Austin in Nacogdoches. Because what would happen would be a lot of your older black communities are drying up, either through the young people leaving and all regentrification. 
Stephen F. Austin, right there off of 59, was a black community of houses that was in the Yoruba tradition. We call them shotgun houses. And they were that community, and they said, DC, would you go in there and document that for us? And then I did the same thing for the University of Texas at the uh, Odessa Premier, in the Premier Basin. And uh, Sam Houston State University down Houston. And so I, I did that, and that was how I got to become an oral historian. And one of the reasons that it's important that you, I always tell this short story. I like to pepper my stories with stories. And it goes like this here. Because you asked me what was the purpose of the grill, I can tell you better in the story. Okay? Please do. And it goes like this. There was a man that came to Africa, and when he came to Africa, he was going to, he, he wanted to do some trading. So he comes to Africa, and he goes to this beautiful village. Man, he sees all these wonderful wood carvings and things like that. And so he decides to make a trade with the chief. And the chief agrees to make a trade. So you know what he does? He gives the chief a television set. And he takes those beautiful carvings and things, and he takes them back, man, back to where he came from. And when he gets there, man, people is buying them right off the shelf. I, man, you're going to have to get some more of these. So he decides he's going to go back to Africa and get some more from that same village because they do such a wonderful job carving wood. So he goes back this time. This time when he goes back, he goes and he meets the chief, and he tells the chief he's back for some more of those style of things. And he says, yeah, well, what you did? He said, well, what you bring the trade this time? And he said, I bought a VCR. <laughs> he said, a VCR? He said, yeah, yeah, it goes with the tele television. And he looks around and says, Where, where's the television? And he said, oh, it's over there. And in the corner was sitting the television, had a beautiful piece of African cloth draped over it and a fruit bowl sitting on top. <laughs> and he looked over and said, uh, why ain't you looking at the television. And he said, because we have the storyteller. He said, but the TV knows more stories than the storyteller. But the chief said, yeah, but the storyteller knows my people. And that's the part that we need, that's why we need the storytellers, because the storytellers communicate on that level not that abstract level that you have coming out the television or off your cell phone. They, 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 I like to get in front of people and talk and, and, and maybe say the wrong thing because I'm talking too fast. I was at uh, one of the schools in Richardson's, and when, I'm, when I get really excited, my Cajun accent gets <laughs> thicker and thicker. And before you know it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, baby, I'll tell you, we're going to go down there. So showing show up. <laughs> and they'd be like, who is the, where did where, where D.C. go? You know, and I, I'll do that. And see, that's the reason that I wanted to be a storyteller. And I actually was given the title of Griot when I found myself spending time in a, with a program called Essay to Essay. That stood for San Antonio to South Africa. A lot of people don't realize it, but the sister city to San Antonio is Johannesburg, South Africa. And when the Griots of Johannesburg came, the people at the Texas Folklife Festival, they had heard me call the urban griot. And they said, well, we've got to have our griot meet them. And that's how I got there. And they, 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 they blessed me. They ordained me. They said, okay. 
because one of the things they told me was that what, we, what I was doing was important because I try to tell stories that teach lessons. And that's one of the reasons I get called the Urban Aesop is because I also have stories that all have a moral at the end. And I think that's very important because, you know, um, sometimes our young people, it's, how can I say this politically correct? Uh, they become desensitized. They become desensitized because I'm doing a workshop in uh, this Saturday on storytelling to teach about anger and violence because I spent time with the uh, Stop the Violence campaign in the 90s. And uh, they, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services was running people through a course called The Art of Peacekeeping about how to teach conflict resolution two teenagers and young people. And that's how I ended up working at Dallas County Juvenile Justice. And then I uh, also worked at Seagullville Prison with the guys up there and the uh, federal facility in Fort Worth. Now, a lot of your uh, storytelling, your work in storytelling has been with children and, and yeah. youth. Uh, were you a storyteller as a kid? If, if I was My mama thinks so. Uh, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> My mama thought so. Well, as a kid, I was a reader. I was a voracious reader. I tell young people now all the time, I say, you know what? When I was your age, we didn't have a computer. But you know what we had? We had the encyclopedia. You could go and get an encyclopedia, and if you wanted to see a picture of a rhinoceros, all you had to do was get the aura out. <laughs> and, and ooh, there's a rhinoceros and things like that. And we would... And that was what I did. I would just sit and I would just read. And I loved at the library. I, was a, I, was, I loved at the library because they had all kind of books and things like that that I could read. And it was my way of going the places I couldn't go with my imagination. My, let my imagination take me there. Uh, we didn't have central heat and air, so when we would put the, we put a box fan in the window. And the best part about putting the box fan in the window was when you made your, your spaceship. <laughs> so you tuck the sheet around the top and turn it on and it would <laughs> You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Oh man, that was so much fun. That was my spaceship. It was, and I, so I always did have this imagination and I never thought that my imagination would be how I make my living, but it is now. But it seems that your, your stories seem to be, or your storytelling seems to be more than just entertainment. You're, you're trying to pass on history, you're trying to heal, you're trying to connect, you're trying to motivate. Yes, uh, yeah, 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 I do. And that's because, to quote, my old commander when I was in the military, he said my problem was I was a crusader. He said, that's your problem. He said, that also makes you a good soldier, but that's your problem, you're a crusader. I was quick to speak my mind and say what got on my nerves and things like that. That's how I made sergeant three times. <laughs> I'd make it open my mouth, they'd take it back, and then I'd earn it back again. That's how I made it. <laughs> True story. 
That's how I made Sergeant three times because I always felt like we have to do something. It all began with a young man by the name of Michael Grigsby. Michael Grigsby was killed. I was good friends with his father. His father was a social worker at St. Teresa's home in Fort Worth. And I was in between jobs. And I took a job at St. Teresa's home. Because when I was in the military, I was so stressed out by my job. I had a very stressful job until my commander told me that you said, you know what, all you do is you eat, sleep, and drink this job. You need to do something different. Get you a hobby. So I took up cooking. And I, and I have a certificate in gourmet cooking from the Hillcrest Institute in Portland, Maine, I'll have you know. <laughs> and so I took up cooking. And so whenever, w once I got out the military, I took advantage of some of the things I had. But every now and then, if I just needed work, I could always fall back on my cooking certificate. And that's how I ended up at St. Teresa's home with Mike. And we all worked it with a bunch of the kids and the St. Teresa's home, uh, took in all kind of children. The nuns on the other side of the street, they, they, they took in uh, newborn babies that were born HIV positive and they had them over there. And then we had other kids that was being removed from different things. And they would come and they would put them in the kitchen with me for KP. But it got to be where we had so much fun till it wasn't punishment no more. <laughs> it stopped being punishment. And Little Mike would come and hang out with his daddy and play with the kids. But then one Sunday, I'll never forget this Sunday, one Sunday, Mike's mom had fixed uh, everything for Sunday dinner but the fried chicken. She said it was too hot to fry chicken. We stopped and get some chicken on the way home. And they stopped on the corner of Wilbog and 287. And they stopped at that church's chicken right there. He hated fountain drinks, he said, because they don't never get them right. Sometimes they, don't, they got too much fizz, and other times they're too syrupy and whatever. And he didn't want that. He said, I want, a, I want a big red soda. Daddy, can I have a big red? His daddy said, okay, I'm going to run across the street and get the big red soda. So they all in church's chicken getting the chicken. And he runs across the street to get the big red soda. While he runs across the street to get the big red soda, Mike had purposely got him a lime green outfit, shirt, things. It was kind of a funny looking green. Because the whole community knew that you didn't wear red and you didn't wear blue. So they put him in green. But when he come out, what they didn't realize is a new group of Crips had just moved into that neighborhood and they called themselves Treetop. And their color was green. And when he come out, the other group saw him in the green, approached him, and killed him. And we were all touched because that was our little that was our little guy. And that was when we all decided that we was gonna do whatever we could to change the way that our young people look at each other in life. Because at that time there was a whole lot of shaking going on and it was some ugly things going on. And I was a complete and total idiot, I'll be honest with you, because we had our mind made up that we was gonna do what we could to stop it. So we started going around. That's why we visited the, the penitentiaries and talked to the young people 
and tried to convince them that this is not the way you want to go. And I would use stories to illustrate that. And then some of the other people that was in our group would use poetry and other spoken words, and we would do that, and we started doing it more and more and more and more. And it got to be a point where we, we started taking unnecessary risks. I actually belonged to a group called NOSAP, which stands for Neighborhoods Organized for Substance Abuse and Prevention, and it was put together by a woman by the name of Sharon Grandbaby, she, Granberry. And she, uh, she's still, well, she's retired now. But the idea behind that was we had so many crack houses in the neighborhood until we wanted to get rid of the crack houses. So we came, she came up with this crazy idea. We were going to put signs in front of the crack houses saying, this is a crack house. Do not stop. Keep going. And we would put the signs out and show you what kind of idiot I am. <laughs> we would put the signs out, and I actually have a picture. And if you go to my website, you might, be, might still be up on my website of me sitting by my sign in front of a crack house, waving cars going on by. Keep going. And that was what we did. We did it for, uh, we did it, we managed to get it done. We did it for about two weeks. And then that's when uh, Miss, Miss Sharon had a meeting at her house, and she told us that we was going to have to stop doing it. And we asked her why, and that was when she introduced us to one of the gang intervention people from, from Fort Worth PD. And that was they told us that we was going to have to stop doing that because the Fort Worth Police Department couldn't guarantee our safety. And they asked us to stop doing it. But it was working. It was really working. And we did other things, you know, because we were just trying to take back our community. And that's how it kind of got started for me. So where do your stories come from? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I write. Or, where, or I guess the question probably should be, where don't they come from? I, I, since I, you I, I write. <laughs> I write, and I call on my own experiences. I call on my own experiences, but I also... I'm still a voracious reader. I'm still a voracious reader. My den looks like a library. It's got a bookshelf there, and it's just covered with books, and it's almost a whole wall of books, and those are just the ones I have in the house, out in the tool shed, in the plastic bags, and dumpsters, not dumpsters, in plastic drums. I've got more, and I'm always looking for stories that illustrate certain points. Um, I told a story the, uh, a couple of days ago, and the story I told was uh, from the art of peacekeeping, and it's a Lozi story. The Lozi people of Africa live upon the floodplains of the Zambezi River. The most precious thing a Lozi man can have is a house. Well, there was a man who liked to fish. He liked to fish in the daytime. And so one day, the day fisherman, he gets in his boat, and he rows his boat. He rows his boat, and as he's rowing his boat to go fishing, a gust of wind <laughs> blows him upon a sandbar. When he arrives upon the sandbar, his nose is sharp. He can smell ripe fruit. So he goes looking for something to eat, because who doesn't want something sweet to eat while you're out fishing, right? 
So he goes to get him something. He finds the fruit. He comes back. When he comes back, he walks into a great clearing, as big as the one we're here right now. And he looks at the clearing, and he goes, now this would be a good place for a house. And if I had a house, I'd have a room right here for me, a room right here for all my stuff, a room right here for my children, a room way in the back for my mother-in-law. <laughs> but then if he wants some fish, you better go fishing. So he jumped in the boat, and away he go. That evening, the sun go down, and who decides to go fishing but the night fisherman? Now, he likes to fish at night because the sun is too hot for his bald head. And so he goes fishing. He's getting ready to go. He comes to that same bend in the river. <laughs> Gust of wind blows him upon the sandbar. He, too, can smell the ripe fruit. So he goes to gather some fruit because who doesn't want something sweet to eat while you're fishing, right? And so he goes, he gathers the fruit. He comes back, and then there, under the light of a full moon, he sees the diagram of a house. He looks up at the moon in the sky and says, thank you, my friend, the moon in the sky, for showing me where my house should be. I must show him I'm willing to work as hard as he for a house. So he gets down on his hands and knees, and he digs post holes for a house. Well, the next day, the day fisherman comes, and he sees the post holes there, and he says, Oh, my God, thank you, my friend, sun in the sky, for helping me with my house. I must show him I'm willing to work as hard as he for my house. So he cuts poles and he puts them in the hole. He goes fishing. The night fisherman comes through there. He gets ready to go gather some fruit. He comes and sees the pole sticking straight up in there. And he's like, oh, thank you, my friend, the moon in the sky, for helping me with my house. And this is how it goes. One man working in the daytime, the other man working at night, until finally the house is complete. And here comes the day fisherman. He's on his way to his house. He has everything he owns in his boat. And when he gets to his house, he takes everything he owns out of his boat. He ties his boat up to his house, and he stands there on his porch fishing until the sun goes down. And then here comes the day fisherman. I mean, here comes the night fisherman. When he comes around the bend in the road, he looks over, he sees the house, and he yells, hey, get off my porch. The other man says, your porch? He said, yes, get off of my porch. This is my house. No, it's my house. Mine, no mine. I put in the floors. I put in the doors. I put in the walls. I put in the windows. They started arguing over who did what. One man became so angry, he pushed the other one. And now they were pushing and shoving and pushing and shoving and pushing and shoving. One man became so angry, he picked up a knife. The other man grabbed a spear. And now they were poking and slashing and poking and slashing at each other. And you know what happened when that started. Everybody in the village started yelling, fight, fight, fight. And everybody come running to see what was going on. But one of them that also came was the king's warrior. Because the king's warrior is kind of like a policeman. You know, sometimes he's there to protect us from others, and sometimes he's there to protect us from each other. And so he comes running, he grabs one man like this, and he grabs the other man because he's one of them brothers about seven feet tall, built like Shaquille O'Neal. Y'all know what I'm saying? He grabs men, he shakes them till they drop their weapons, and he goes, what is the problem here? And both men tell their tale. And he says, this problem too big, my small head. Let's go see the chief. So they went to see the chief. 
The chief was sitting on a big rock right there at the edge of the river, and everybody followed to see what was going to happen. Well, the warrior brought him and said, Your Majesty, these two fighting. The chief said, Fighting? I'll hear your witness. I'll hear your witness. I've heard your witness, and you have an honest face. I've heard your witness, and your words have the shape of truth. Truth, honesty, honesty, truth. But there's one more I must ask before I make my decision. The, everybody was wondering, only these two fighting. The king jumped down off that rock and he put his ear to the ground and he whispered some words. Then he got up and brushed himself off. And he looked at the two men and said, truth, honesty, honesty, truth. But I agree with the third witness. And finally, someone said, your majesty, only these two fighting. He says, no. The third witness was the land. I asked the land to whom it belonged, and it told me it didn't belong to either one of y'all. It was here when you got here, and it'll be here when you are gone. And it is foolishness to fight over such as he. Now go and share this land we live in for the betterment of us all in peace. And that's the story of the two fishermen. And the moral behind that story for our young people is sometimes we can get so wrapped up in what we want, when we want it, how we want it, till we overlook the contributions that others have made for our in our life. We can become so self-centered. And that's what that story is about, learning how to reach out and accept that there are other people out there that are an important part of your success, whether you, whether you realize it or not, because we all in this together, you know what I'm saying? And that's the story of the two fishermen. So how do you, in your work with youth, how do you, how do you help youth to find their own voices, their own stories? Make them right. Make them right. If I got any educators out there, y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Make them right. Make them right. Because you'll have, believe it or not, it's the great equalizer. Making them right is the great equalizer. And what ends up happening oftentimes, they will have feelings, but they won't know how to express them. They'll have feelings, but then they won't know how to express them. I'll, oftentimes, when I'm working with young people, I will do a story. And in the story, the animals all represent different types of people going back all the way back into the uh, Roman times. And so oftentimes, I get a kid to open up because we're not talking about you. We're talking about Brother Rabbit. You know, did you, have you ever felt like Brother Rabbit? Have you ever felt, you know, um, there's a story of rabbit drinking boils, drinks boiling water. And in the story, rabbit drinks boiling water, he keeps coming up with excuses to not drink the water. And in the, in the process, the water cools off and he finally drinks it and wins it and everything's, you know, cool. But the idea behind the stories oftentimes is to allow these young people to talk about sensitive issues, to talk about sensitive issues and put them on paper. 
put them on paper, think about it. Uh, because right, because a lot of times things that happen with them are abstract. That's the word I'm looking for. They're abstract, they're just a fleeting moment. But if you get them to sit down and really think about it, really think about it, what would you change if you could change anything? What would you change? You know, what would you change? And a lot of times you ask questions like that, what would you change if you could change anything? Uh, a lot of times you have young people that misbehave and cut up and act really bad, and then when you get them, you put the pencil and paper in their hand, you find out that they have problems writing and communicating. And sometimes that frustration manifests itself in anger and violence. But if you give them a opportunity to really express themselves, one of the things I do sometimes, especially when I'm working with the older kids and I get a chance, uh, if I'm working in a big room, I'll actually have two microphones put up. I'll tell my story, and then if they have a question, I want them, I'll say, now what I want you to do is get up, come down, step in front of the microphone, and ask your question. Oh my goodness. Because they, 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 the hands are going, they all, they, but then when you put them on the spot and give them that opportunity, every now and then you'll have one or two that will come up and be very articulate, but then you have those that are just kind of nervous, and then you work with them. You help them build their confidence, build their confidence. Let them know that they'll be all right in school, you know? Let them know that they'll be all right in school. And I've been teaching, I teach at Tarrant County College, been doing that for 17 years. And uh, I only work the summer months, though. And a lot of times, I'll be working with young people that are in the program because they, their reading and writing skills aren't up to collegiate level. And over the summer, we're trying to get them up and ready to go for when, when fall, for fall. And that's what I do. And that was when I began to realize then that a lot of times it's frustration and anger. But I can get them to do, it's, it's crazy because they always tell me, Mr. DC, tell us one of them jacked up stories. <laughs> and I'll tell them it's jacked up story. But I also would tell them stories about history. And I love telling stories about history and the places I've been, because one of my favorite stories that they really love me to tell is my trip to Ethiopia. And when I got a chance to go to Ethiopia, it wasn't one of those fancy trips that you guys take where you go on safari, you know, and you, you're going around doing all that. It was the, uh, it was the, it was the er early 80s. The, uh, Ethiopia was already in a famine and now there was civil unrest. And the United Nations, we were stationed at Osaka, Japan, the United Nations had uh, decided they was going to do a um, humanitarian. I had never been to Africa before. And as an African American, that's something that I really have always wanted to do all my life. And now I had a chance to go to Africa. So when the commander came out and asked for volunteers, I raised my hand. And he said, okay, Sarge. I said, hot dog. 
I'm going to Africa. I'm going to be to Africa. And I'm going to Africa. And I'm sitting in the back of that old C-130, man. And it's, we're going. And I'm telling you. And it's got them. It's, and, and the side of C-130 don't have regular seats. They got them fold-down seats. And it looks like a, a lawn chair. See, she, look at she laughed. You been there, I've done that. Got the T-shirt. All right. You too. Okay, y'all know what I'm talking about. Man, you riding on that seat. And it's loud, man. And you, can't, you hardly can talk to anybody because it's so loud. Hardly any soundproofing. But when we got there, man, they said, all right, we're going to be touching down in Africa. Everybody buckle up. And we slapped our buckles and things like that, man. Then that plane landed. And when it landed, that back door started going down. Boy, I reached over and I grabbed a box of supplies and I started walking. And man, I'm gonna tell you something. When I got there, I looked around and I was like, Africa! Oh! And I swear to God, when I got out the plane, my foot hit the ground and electricity just started shooting up my leg. <laughs> And I was like, Africa, oh, boy, I was just so excited, man. I picked up some rocks, put them in my pocket, because I was going to take some of Africa back home with me. <laughs> and, man, everything was going along good. I was having fun, meeting people, and just really just unpacking things and just how you doing and, you know, trying to pick up a little of the language. A few of them spoke English, you know, and everything was going well. And I actually managed to... Well, when time came to go, we headed back. Now, by the time we got back to Osaka, the base was all, it was all a buzz. Because what had happened was, while we were flying back, that 12-hour flight back, uh, they had, the village that we had dropped the stuff off, it had been attacked by, well, by the bad guys. And what it ended up happening was a lot of supplies and things we had were gone. Uh, a lot of folk had got shot up. And the commander had said that by the time we got back, they was already outfitting planes to take off to go back. And I volunteered again. But this time, when I volunteered, the commander looked and he saw that I had volunteered. And he said, I want my boots on the ground. And he told me, go by the armory and get your gear. So I went to the armory, got my gear, and some of the other guys that was in our unit, we all volunteered. And so this time when that C-130 landed, I didn't get off with a box of supplies. I got off in full battle gear, my helmet, M-16, sidearm, body armor, the whole nine. And we put up a perimeter around that village to make sure that all the people would be safe and we were going to be resupplied and supported by an Ethiopian militia unit that was on the way. So while I was out in the boonies, they decided to switch us up because what happens is you get almost like highway hypnosis if you're just looking at the same thing all the time. So they make us move around and they decided that uh, it was time for me to come in off the perimeter and they put me on guard duty of a truck full of first aid medical supplies and powdered milk and powdered milk and eggs. So I'm standing there, man, I got my M16. And I'm just standing there, and I look up, and here comes the militia marching. 
And one of the guys, he comes there and he stops, man. And you could tell that they was trained by the British, by the way they was marching. They was doing that old herky-jerky marching. Then he came up there, man, he stood in front of me. And he went. I looked at him, I went, what's up? <laughs> he looked at me and went, hello. <laughs> and then he stood right next to me. And man, he was dressed in some, some khaki pants that was cut off about right here. And he had on what looked like some brown penny loafers. And that sock that came up right here, and he had a knot tied in the side right here so he wouldn't roll down. And he was standing next to me, and he had an old British, a British 303 infield rifle, bolt action. And but he's standing right next to me. And we standing there. And then it got dark. And I'm not talking, see, the one thing that living in the city, you have that ambient light. It's always something lit up. Wasn't like that. I'm talking about that old-fashioned, deep East Texas country dark. <laughs> so dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But I knew he was standing there next to him. I could hear him breathing. And so we're standing there. And then I heard something. And this is, uh, the kids really love this part of the story. I said, then I heard something. <laughs> and that's when Mr. D.C. got real stupid. <laughs> know how I know I got stupid? Because I started asking dumb questions. <laughs> dumb question number one. Did you hear that? <laughs> yes. Dumb question number two, what was it? Lion. Dumb question number three, what kind of lion? <laughs> Big one. <laughs> I said, what are we going to do? Smart question. First smart question. What are we going to do? He said, fire. I said, yeah, let him come out here. I'm going to light him up. No, Bill, fire. I'm like, huh? He handed me his rifle, and he disappeared into the darkness. He come back with an armful of kindling, and he put it down. He pointed to it, and he said, fire. I said, oh, fire, fire, yeah, yeah. And so I went into my survival pouch, and I came out with a waterproof match, and I lit a fire. And me and him stood there that night, and he and I, we told stories back and forth. He would ask me about, he asked me about Texas. I told him I was from Texas, and he wanted to know if I was a cowboy. <laughs> and I told him, that's right, I'm a Dallas cowboy. <laughs> he was very impressed, too, you know? <laughs> And that was one of the things I learned is that people <laughs> are all the same all over the world. They really are. Because when time came, when the sun came up, he actually, I was going to sleep under the truck. That's where I was going to sleep because it gets really hot and I was going to sleep under the truck in that shade. And uh, I, I throw my bedroll down there. But it went. That's all right. I ain't mad. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. See if my microphone continues to. Let me turn mine off. Uh-huh. Okay, and he uh, he invited me to his home, and I got a chance to meet his kids, and 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 uh, I actually slept on a cot instead of sleeping on the ground. And we stayed there for a while. And I got to meet some wonderful people. And I'll never forget that trip. I'll never forget that trip because when I got back, it made me appreciate what I had so much more. And it made me, it also made me kind of aware that man's inhumanity to man sometimes has no bounds. This you know, earth. and I, like I say, all these things kind of all played into who I became, you know, because I left there with a sense of purpose. I did. I left there with a sense of purpose. I wanted to, I, I, I felt like I wanted to do more, you know, and I, I began to try and do more. And then when I got out of the military, I ended up working at Cook's Children's Hospital the St. Teresa's home around kids and things like that, which was a bit of an odd turn for a guy that had a job that I did. <laughs> well, I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface, so it feels, I mean, feel, it feels like we'll have to have you again next season to just to have <laughs> part two. Well, thank y'all. Thank y'all for listening. And uh, No, 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 keep, 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 keep it on, because we do have our top ten shorts. Oh, okay. Remember, I warned you about the top ten shorts. All right. And I do you, now. You do have a harmonica here. Do we have? Do we have time for harmonica? Whatever it is. Well, the, harmon- the harmonica actually went with a story. Ah. It did. It did. Well, we'll we'll save that one for next time. Okay, we All did. Right. We will. So now we have our top ten shorts. These are short answers. First time. This is to, for us to can. Although I feel like we've gotten to know you, in a in a very special way tonight. So question number one, pie or cake? Cake. Cake. Number two, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Beatles. Number three, armadillos or alligators? (laughs) Now, now, are we eating these? I got Louisiana Cajun in me. <laughs> I got Louisiana Cajun in me, you know. Number why f- the chicken cross the road saw DC with a biscuit. <laughs> Number four, your dream vacation spot. Ooh. It would be on the islands, a small island not too far from Guam in the Northern Marianas called Palau. Number five, the first vegetable that comes to your mind. Broccoli. Number six, Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck? Well, Daffy was a black guy. (laughs) But Bugs was cool. Bugs had that attitude, you Mm -hmm. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number seven, spiders or snakes? Ooh. You, there's something wrong with that whole thought. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say 
snakes. Number eight, your favorite food. Oh, man. My dietary, my, my, my palate has changed over the years. Um, I would go, I, I would go with uh, yard bird chicken. Number nine, chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. And number 10, the best storyteller in the world other than you. Wow. Um, the best in the world other than me. I would go, I'll tell you who I like, okay? I, I, I like a fella by the name of, well, oh my God, he's gone. It was Doc Moore. Doc Moore was, uh, he was, he just had this, he would come up and he, he had that, he would holler at you like Minnie Pearl. Howdy, y'all! <laughs> and he would start telling stories. And Doc Moore, could, he could really tell stories, and Doc, he's, he just recently passed. And uh, I still ain't found nobody that could entertain me the way Doc had. Could. Well, you have certainly entertained us tonight. I, we, we could go on for hours and hours just with your stories, so thank you so much for a great evening. Kitty's going to wrap us up and tell us about next month's airtime. Everyone, please help me thank D.C. Cornish. And as Pat shared earlier, uh, DC has been um, here in Richardson for almost four weeks now uh, as part of the AIR Arts Incubator of Richardson uh, Storytelling, Storytelling Festival. And uh, again, concluding on Saturday with you saw the events and, that he talked about, but you can go to our Facebook page or website and find out more. And thank you to Pat Fox for organizing and coordinating all of these wonderful events of the festival our sponsors, and then I would be remiss if I did not remind you that our next airtime is March the 12th, and we will be featuring Kathy Tran, who is our photographer. And Kathy happens to be a photographer, a stylist, and an entrepreneur, and you will be absolutely um, entranced with her story. So the movie will be Blow Up from 1966, some of us actually remember that movie. Anyway, we hope that we will see you on March the 12th and that you enjoy the movie tonight. And DC, thank you again. Thank you, thank you all. Oh, and it's one other thing, I knew I was gonna forget it and I even wrote it down. For those of you who have not been to all nine seasons of Airtime, uh, they are podcasts and they are on iTunes. So go to iTunes and look for Airtime and you can listen to some of our other previous guest artists.